Join Return to Wittenberg for its sixth annual conference. Keynote speaker will be Brief History of Power's very own Dr. Adam Kuntz. The conference is hosted by Faith Lutheran Church in Oregon, Wisconsin, October 7th through the 9th. You are guaranteed an enjoyable time of fellowship and learning with fellow confessional Lutherans. For more information or to register, please go online to returntowittenberg.org. Again, that's returntowittenberg.org for the conference. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's Word preached purely and His sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and His wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Uh, Dr. Kuntz, did you ever think Roe versus Wade would be overturned in your lifetime? No, no, absolutely not. It is, that decision was 13 years before I was born, and I assumed that it would still be the law of the land, as it were, which is definitely a phrase we should talk about when I die. So 
I had, I, I was honestly very surprised and uh, we can go into the different opinions that were rendered because with a majority opinion, you, you usually have concurrences and, and Roberts had something even more reserved, a concurrence with judgment. And then there was the dissent from, you know, Breyer, Sotomayor and Kagan, the, the three horse people of the apocalypse or whatever yeah, they are yeah. on all these decisions. So I am shocked that this was overturned partly because I did not anticipate America being so openly divided. And that to me is the largest significance of a lot of what has occurred both in the Dobbs decision and because of the Dobbs decision and that will occur is the, the openness of division, the openness of vast disagreement. And, you know, this is, I, I, this is not a decision that I would have thought possible, certainly in 2018, mm-hmm. because there was still some veneer of agreement, perhaps at that time, some, and it was a lot thinner than in 2008 or 1998. So I, no, I did not anticipate this at all. Well, take that never Trumpers. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean the the never the never the never Trumper thing. There, there are kind. I, I, I think of this as there are two kinds of never Trumpers. One kind of never Trumper is an actual committed political operative, usually on the federal level, usually lives in the D.C. metro area, and has a certain conception of what American politics is and what is acceptable within American politics and what is advantageous for his career, and therefore could not abide Trump and would be smart to distance himself from Trump in many ways, especially for the sake of that career, I suppose. The other kind of never-Trumper is somebody who is sort of simply offended by various things about Trump, and that is a person who I have found is very likely to be very nostalgic for Ronald Reagan, Hmm. who... (laughs) was, as we have mentioned before, the governor who implemented abortion in the state of California. So there's always selective memory involved here. Never Trumpers on a popular level seem to be people who are offended by people being rude or not nice or something. And although I don't share those social reflexes, I understand that people have them and I don't begrudge them that. But the significance of the short four years of Trump is, yes, very readily seen now in the Dobbs decision, as well as all the other things coming out of the court in the past couple of weeks. It's kind of ridiculous, actually, the, the number of court things. And I don't know how much you want to go into those as well uh, now and in the next hour. Um, in terms of your surprise, uh, can I ask you when you knew this was coming? When did you first hear this was coming? Was it the leak? No. After the oral arguments, which I believe occurred in December of 21, there was a pretty wide sense that something big was going to happen out of this because of the way that things were argued. And Sotomayor and Kagan especially do not have the same protocols in oral argument that even Breyer does, or certainly than someone like John Paul Stevens who was born perhaps in the 1920s had. So you can see when they're getting frustrated hmm. very easily. And, and obviously they can tell more about 
the temperature in the room and the, the sense among the justices as they're sitting there during oral arguments. And it was from their tone, Sotomayor and Kagan's tone, that I anticipated that something like this would happen. I did not anticipate the breadth of the decision because there are several options that they could have gone with that we could discuss that they didn't go with. They, they went with something pretty overarching. Yeah. Yeah. So I participated in a walk for life here in Rockford would have been January of 2022. So it would have been mm -hmm. after those oral arguments. And I was kind of stunned by the keynote speaker and it wasn't, wasn't a huge event, a couple thousand people, um, keynote speaker though, uh, saying, uh, y'all need to know, uh, in June is getting overturned. We've done it. And I was, I was like, wow. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's, right. that's good news. And, um, but he was so convicted. I was kind of like, yeah, it sounds like he knows what he's talking about. He gave a whole list of, you know, we've been doing this, we're doing this, but, and he, I think he mentioned Dobbs is the case and everything. Um, yeah. but then, so, you know, the breadth of it, that's probably worth digging into. Uh, cause I, I don't think you just mean Clarence Thomas's opinion that this undoes all sorts of other decisions. Um, <laughs> right. Clarence, yeah. Clarence, yeah. Clarence Thomas's opinion is marvelous in its own way, but yeah. Yeah. But, but it, it does. Well, I, I guess what I'm curious to hear from you is, so aside from deciding that it is, it is bad law because there is no precedent because it is not in the bill of rights and it is therefore a fabricated reality. Yeah. What other options could they have, have gone with? Okay. They, they could have done something, which is what everyone seems to feel they did but which they did not in fact do. Everyone seems to feel that they have declared abortion to be illegal throughout the United States of America. Well, that's what the left is saying they did. That's what the <laughs> left is saying. That is also, I think, how people who support the Dobbs decision feel about it, as if some kind of dam has broken with mm. this. And I think that that feeling is factually false but it is in some sort of sensible way, correct. And you see that in the dissent from, I think it was written by Breyer, although there's a very Sotomayor tone to some of it. People didn't write the constitution, men did. Mm. <laughs> it's just, but that, that sense is that this is only the beginning of what they will do. Because, the grounds for its being overturned were the faultiness of its reasoning in, in Roe to begin with, and then especially in Casey, because, okay, okay, so Roe is 1973, Casey is Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania v. Casey, 1992, and Casey affirms the right to abortion, but limits its basis to this question of substantive due process under the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. That becomes its only really abiding basis with a criterion of the viability of the life of the unborn child, limiting abortion law, as it were. Okay. Now that has become already before Roe was overturned already this year, that viability criterion has been ignored. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, for example, Colorado preemptively passed a law permitting abortion throughout pregnancy. And in Maryland and now also in California, you have what are 
called perhaps euphemistically or extremely cynically, probably both, post-birth abortion, allowing infanticide after birth to one degree or another. So Casey has been recognized for a long time as extremely vague and, and poorly reasoned, as was Roe. And this, the majority opinion overturns. What is significant, I think, however, is when I said sensibly correct or sensibly true, the feeling we all have that somehow abortion has been outlawed is that we all know that something is much deeper under here than questions of legal interpretation. Those questions of legal interpretation are not only vastly different between the conservative majority on the court and the liberal minority. And that extends also to some of the gun cases that have come up. It especially extends to their understanding of how the coach in Bremerton, Washington was praying at the 50 yard line in the case that was handed down, I believe the day after Roe. Mm -hmm. And so what you can see is that we disagree not only on these questions that go back to things that we've talked about a long time ago on the show, like the crucial importance of the 14th Amendment in permitting the federal government in various branches to regulate life in the states. And then certain understandings of what that means and Justice Thomas's understanding that due process has to do with certain you know, legal requirements, legislatively established requirements when you're trying, when the state is trying to deprive someone of life, liberty, or property. substantive due process is not an establishment of certain rights that are utterly novel in American history. And in concurrence with that idea of novelty, the majority opinion goes into great detail about how illegal, how extensively illegal abortion has been in American history, even at the time that Roe was handed down. Mm -hmm. So those arguments are I think all well and good. They're very tightly argued. I believe Alito was the chief writer on the majority opinion and Alito's writing is always tightly and clearly argued. So if you want a a tremendous piece of reasoning, you would read the majority opinion. If you want a tremendous piece of rhetoric, you would read the dissenting opinion. (laughs) What I think is fascinating is what is, especially underneath the rhetoric in the dissenting opinion and underneath Thomas's concurrence, that there is so much else represented by Roe v. Wade on which we do not agree. So if the justices cannot even agree on the facts of a case in the prayer case with the football coach in Washington, how can we agree on what could have been a more sweeping decision but truly was not, which is this must be outlawed in all 50 states because it deprives an innocent person of his life. Those are my grounds for opposition to abortion. I don't oppose abortion because, you know, the state of Colorado is run by Democrats and I'm a Republican or something. I oppose it because it is the unjust taking of a person's life. I I agree with that. that. I just, I don't know. I mean, can the court rule a law into existence that way. I, I get that that's kind of how Roe worked, but that wasn't the case they were deciding, was it? No, the case they were deciding, and this is this is covered only in the dissenting opinion, clearly, is that when the state of Mississippi 
argued at first, they were arguing that they were, they were arguing about the specifics of the gestational age act passed by their, their legislature, which were about viability and the prohibition of abortion after 15 weeks. So that was well within the terms of Casey. It was within the terms of <laughs> court establishment of scientific reality and therefore of legal reality of personhood in terms of Roe. It was in, in this sense, traditional. What Mississippi was arguing by the end of the case, and Mississippi is the plaintiff behind Dobbs, who is the state health officer for the state of Mississippi. And Jackson is Jackson Women's Health Center, which is, I believe, a Planned Parenthood clinic. But it's Jackson is in Jackson, Mississippi, not a private individual. So what they're what they're arguing by the end is that Roe and Casey need to be overturned. So what you can see here is that we can't really be entirely honest with each other because some of us believe this is murder. And some of us believe that we cannot even live without the right to go through with these procedures, which others of us believe are murder. What we're getting in this way is something that is, I, I, I don't, sometimes these comparisons are overdrawn, but this, this does resemble the Dred Scott decision yeah. in this sense that the Dred Scott decision is made on utterly strict constructionist interpretation of the constitution. You're, you're not interested necessarily in the overarching principle. Uh, should personhood be accorded to people who are in slavery, all of these kinds of things. This is similar in that behind legal interpretation and constitutional discussion it, are entire conceptions of life with some modicum of political and legal representation. Because they don't agree with each other, the differences appear irreconcilable in the long term and perhaps in an increasingly shorter and shorter term because we're, we're not we're not talking about even things as relatively small, although also significant in their own way, as magazine capacity limits in discussions of gun control we're to, or, or red flag laws, okay? We're at the point where we're not sure what a human is, therefore we're not sure if that person can be murdered or if it is murder. These are really metaphysical questions, they're religious questions, they're philosophical questions, and if they do not have some, some sort of common agreement about their definitions, their sense, their force, then the idea that a polity ultimately can hold together, despite disagreement about what is a person and can you murder him, holding together appears impossible over the long term because even, I mean, so many things differ so vastly inside the court itself, inside nine people let alone outside the court, <laughs> right? And those nine people have to work with each other. We don't have to work with each other on any kind of daily basis. I mean, we might depend on each other in some kind of supply chain way, but we don't have to work with each other. It's hard to tell from the noise, you know, what is Twitter? Is it an AI algorithm run by demons to drive me personally <laughs> insane? Is, is, is that what it is? Why um, not? It's hard to tell what the images of the rage and the gnashing of teeth and the screaming 
I mean, you got a couple of congresswomen. You got Hillary Clinton. I mean, how much of the United States do they actually represent? It's hard to tell. But what you're saying, it kind of fits with the implication that, okay, so, you know, you won the battle, but the war is a long, long way from over. And if you look at the next era of troops, they're cutting off body parts and parading naked in the streets in front of the next level and, you know, teaching preschoolers to to masturbate. And um, so, you know, what's coming next seems unavoidable. Yeah. Putting it in the context then of Dred Scott, um, although I'm not sure I'm convinced that the Civil War was about slavery. It certainly did impact slavery. Um, it it was about two worldviews that could not coincide together. And uh, finally, it's decided by, by the sword. And so for us as uh, Americans, second, and Christians first, to not be blind to the the potential likelihood i don't know i don't, I don't want right. to you know what right. number to put on it um that there there will be a military decision made in the next 40 years um i think that's that's pretty poignant so yeah i mean dred scott is not significant for everyone's remembrance of justice roger tawney or his representing maryland as at, and an actually Southern state, which it was certainly in 1857, or for its understanding of, you know, how distantly is it related to the, the immediate or the, you know, more proximate cause of the Civil War, which is the South's sense that the election of Lincoln is incompatible with their continuation, not only of their economic pursuits, but also of everything undergirding those economic pursuits, which also involve things that are very complex for most of the listeners, such as the South is the region of the country that's defending the inspiration of Holy Scripture. The North is the region of the country that is confused about that at the very least. And Southerners are therefore associating all of their theology with the defense of divine scripture and the North with an increasing Irreligi- irreligiosity, which, which is not true for everyone, but it is true for Unitarians and transcendentalists running around who also happen to be, along with Quakers, your most fervent abolitionists. So all of these things are extremely complex. So we can't say, yes, Dred Scott causes a war, slavery causes civil war. It's that when you have conflict, and I think that if you're, you know, you're listening to this, you can see this in your own life. You can see this inside yourself or with your spouse, when you have conflict, it is many headed because it may have one specific reason for occurring, but then all the heads of that Hydra then pop up. And then you realize that this is really hard or really hard to fix or impossible to resolve or whatever you think, because it has so many more sides than you understood before the actual conflict was going on. So in the case of Roe v. Wade, let's talk about just the legal conflicts implicit in the decision that was made in Dobbs, but then also all the other things that that represents. And the legal stuff could take us the rest of this week, but we have have time on the show. This is really brought up in what is a relatively brief opinion. So if you find the whole document, this is not that many pages of the 213, I think, is Justice Thomas's opinion. 
he brings up this phrase that we have brought up already, substantive due process, which is the grounds for the enumeration, or we could say less charitably, the invention of rights, especially by courts, and especially by the Supreme Court, that has produced not only Roe v. Wade and Casey v. Planned Parenthood v. Casey, but also the legalization of contraception in Griswold v. Connecticut that predates Roe. That's where the phrase right to privacy really comes into its own. And also things post-dating Roe. So Lawrence v. Texas, which made sodomy legal in the state of Texas. Sodomy also pretty much always a crime at common law. If you're looking for things that we all used to agree, we're just completely wrong. (laughs) Sodomy is up there with abortion. And then also after Lawrence v. Texas, Obergefell v. Hodges, which, which, unlike the majority opinion here, which doesn't outlaw abortion in all 50 states, legalized gay marriage in all 50 states. And that went way over the head, although Thomas doesn't really mention it. He's talking about legal grounds. But this idea of judicial restraint, Obergefell v. Hodges went way over the head of everyone because even California voted. (laughs) California voted against gay marriage. Everybody did at one time or another. So these kinds of questions are enormous. And what's, what's brought up by overturning something that if you remember Supreme Court hearings for a very long time, the question that is always brought by pro-abortion politicians, usually now Democrats, but in the past, this was more divided within each party. There were more pro-life Democrats. There were more pro-abortion Republicans. Pro-abortion guy gets up there. He says, um, you know, justice so-and-so, because they're usually coming from some kind of federal district court. Do you, do you uphold the decision of the court in Roe v. Wade, 1973. And that is a principle called stare decisis, that is to let stand what has been decided. It's a principle of common law because you're supposed to not just overturn and give this constant sense of impermanence and turbulence to the law. Now, obviously we're, we're beyond all that right now in the United States, but in a functional society, it's probably a good idea. That if we decided two years ago that, you know, fences can't be 15 feet high in a residential neighborhood, that's just weird. Then, you know, two years later, there still can't be 15 feet high. That's a really silly illustration, but you get the point. And Casey upheld Roe on the grounds of stare decisis. So after 92, this becomes even more important. If that can be overturned because it is faulty, because it is simply wrong, because it was factually incorrect about the past, where Roe, for example, brings up abortion in classical antiquity, which does not have a basis of English common law. (laughs) So it kind of doesn't matter if the Romans thought this was important or not. So if these things can be overturned in such politically salient and symbolically important issues, what else can't be overturned? You mentioned that, you know, we didn't outlaw it. Um, and so, uh, the idea that the courts have had the ability to outlaw the outline of things, I don't know, I don't know quite what to do with that. Cause in okay. one sense, isn't that what they're for? They are there at least in theory to me so that in the event that the state does something that is against the constitution, 
that the state passes a law which in, inhibits my constitutional rights. Yeah. And the Constitution said the state shall pass no law, which, although it's, then again, is it not the federal government shall pass no law, which. So, you know, right. what it, what is the real role constitutionally of this court uh, if, it's, if it's not this? Constitutionally, the role of the court is extremely indeterminate. There is honestly very little said about the Supreme Court in the Constitution. And you would certainly not have a sense from the Constitution that the ultimate arbiters of the meaning of the Constitution, which is, let's say, in American political tradition, we're not only talking about documents. I think sometimes, especially when people get a certain version of American conservatism, this has been widely popularized, but prior to its popularization, this was the exclusive preserve of West Coast Straussians. So Claremont School, the Claremont Institute has taken a very different turn. But this idea that America is essentially a collection of papers and you shuffle the papers around in a certain order, and that's the American political tradition. When we say the Constitution, that is about a document, but it's also shorthand for all of these discussions of the relationship between the states and the national government, between the different branches of the different levels of government, and its limitation in discussion to the federal government is seems like something some sort of quaint bygone but is in fact how the document itself discusses things right so the first amendment for example which is a there's a um, synagogue in palm beach county florida that is filing a case against the state of florida saying already uh yesterday as we record this saying that the state of florida's law restricting abortion which which will probably pass it i mean it's florida right they're they're on a roll right now but they're saying that that's an infringement on their religious liberty because jewish law actually requires abortion under certain circumstances right so it's not just that they say you have the option to preserve the life of the mother but that it requires abortion under certain circumstances okay that, if you're reading the Constitution the way it's originally written, has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> because when the Bill of Rights is ratified, I want to say nine of the 13 states have a state church <laughs> in some form. I mean, the, the, the Bill of Rights is about the relationship to the, to the federal, federal government. government. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Now, because of post-1868 understandings of the 14th amendment the 14th amendment it's through the 14th that the federal government and especially the federal judiciary regulate the entire nation and apply things like the first amendment to you know local school districts that's how we got school prayer outlawed in 1963 was that through the 14th amendment we must regulate the equal protection of persons. And therefore, in Abington v. Shemp, they said, you know, you can't have some sort of effectively Protestant slash Catholic, obviously Christian prayer in a local school. Shemp was a Unitarian of all things. You can't do that because the you can't establish one religion over another, right? All of that presumes that the Constitution and its interpretation by the federal judiciary is really what constitutes the United States of America and its internal life. That is 
a novelty, not only to the writers of the constitution, it's not really even all that old. So it's that idea that the judiciary is there to save us all as a last resort that I think is going to, that, <laughs> that is such, that is such a principle of longstanding all the way back to Marbury v. Madison, which I think is 1806. It's such a principle of longstanding, but it really is at the heart of the discussion here. What is the judge there actually to do? And that is a, a matter of extreme controversy because the left especially not only preserves, but even brings into being its desires through the judiciary. I mean, they, they, they did. Ha- they did. Yeah, they, they, they have had to mm-hmm. because what they have advocated is usually wildly unpopular at the time when it is put into force of law. You know, they, they have to. Later on, once it's there for a long time, everyone's like, oh, yeah, that's fine. It's a fetus. Go ahead and kill it. But at the time, you know, California's against gay marriage. That's fine. But, you know, you know, equality is important. So now gay marriage is legal also in Mississippi and not only in California. So they have had to rely on not only a certain understanding of the Constitution, but I think beyond that, because I don't think the Constitution is intended to be some sort of exhaustive document of everything that could ever occur. The Constitution itself indicates that the legislature is extremely important. Now, what is less important and less well known to people than the legislature of the three branches. <laughs> I mean, can mo- most people can name who the president is. They probably even have an opinion about whether he was actually elected. They might then they have a sense of what happens in the Supreme Court because it gets covered. Do they know who both their senators are and which one is the junior senator? Hmm. Yeah. Do they have any sense of what committees their representative is on? Because if you read the Constitution, you will see that the legislature is vastly vastly more that's why it has powers of war for example did did exactly and so i think that that's a good verb to kind of lead us into this that thomas's concurring opinion i think is wonderful i think the majority opinion is great i do not think that this way of arguing it is not wrong it is in fact true it's historically true it's legally correct it's just that it is becoming increasingly irrelevant. Mm-hmm. And, what, and what I mean by that is this, I mean, this is kind of an ancient question about philosophy, right? Because when you're, when you're actually being governed by laws and not by men, you're saying that we can rationally discuss certain things, come to some kind of agreement, and then debate how life should go within those rules. And that forum for debate will be on a local level, a town meeting on a national level, the federal legislature on a state level, your state legislature, that the debate of the people will give rise to common consent. But all of that presumes a lot, which historically did exist. Okay. It, it, it did exist. Common knowledge of the Bible, for example, existed. If that has gone away, then you get a question like Thrasymachus poses to Socrates, which is, isn't politics just all about power? Who cares what philosophers say? Who cares? Well, decent men care because decent men love truth more than power. They do. 
they pursue it. Now, they might pursue it in exile like Confucius did, but they love truth more than power. Great. The problem is not that, that, that somehow those truths become untrue in a time of unrest. It's that they don't matter nearly as much as they should. And the manifestations of power that you're beginning to see are, I think, one of the most interesting outcomes of, of where we're going. And there's, there's a lot to talk about under that heading because it connects with other things that have been going on that are not directly about abortion or the right to abortion. But do you want to talk about any of the legal reasoning before we kind of go into ramifications? Yeah, yeah. More? I mean, that's not where, I'm, where my notes have been kind of leaning. Okay. Uh, I've, I've been circling around and around a question from back when you were talking about the North versus, versus the South, yeah. uh, abolition versus slavery, inspiration versus what do we call it now? Um, it wasn't quite historical critical theory at that point, but you know the Bible. Yeah. The Bible yeah. is less than inspired in there, right. whatever right. form that takes. Right. It's and then my question ends up being kind of the same one as I can't even quote his name. Your friend who asked Socrates a question: uh, "Is is do documents matter? Do documents matter? I mean, yeah. there was there was a time without question there was a time when they did. Right. But it and starting with the Bible being the one that mattered so much that then we decided <laughs> right. that one cannot matter and all the rest will still matter. Right. And now we're right. finding, no, doesn't work that way. Uh, we're entering a time when the real is no longer what we experience. That is what is true is not what people get to see, but instead what is a lie is what they are experiencing. And then this brings me back to the, the the conflict that will arise as the bad scale falls over by power of something that's more real mm -hmm. than the story yeah. we tell ourselves to ignore the documents we had last week. I mean, the, the documents matter when there is a group that receives them. So people might read the book of mormon and find it absolutely incredible that anyone believes this and the, the horses and the elephants in ancient america and and on and on and on and the accounts of inspiration and the gold plates and everything but those documents along with especially the doctrine and covenants matter for mormons both in the mainstream lds and outside of it because they receive it as inspired of god so the question with documents is not whether they matter at all. And there's just, the, the documents are just sort of papering over deeper realities that truly matter more. Documents do matter when men receive them with an open mind. So, so that sounds like documents should matter to me. Like, I mean, I, I think the Bible matters, right? I'm, I'm not trying to advocate that, that it doesn't, but I, I am pretty convinced that if I look at just sort of the uh, the the religion that yeah. is winning yeah. visibly documents don't matter at all i mean uh, the, the it, law of the, the land isn't the law of the land yeah no that's right i mean so this in a in a purely legal sense this traces back to vast disagreements within law schools that have been around for a very long time and so do, i mean i'm not saying documents i'm not only saying documents should matter because they are one of the hallmarks of rule by laws rather than men. That's this is a this is why 
they forced King John to sit down and sign Magna Carta. That's why, because he cannot do whatever he wants in the same way that the King of Israel is actually bound to the covenant of God rather than only to his whims. That's, that's the idea. It's not just that they should, it's that in those cases they do along with other things that documents, it's not that they don't matter. It's that they are not self-sustaining. They are not self-sustaining. So they require both the assent and the adherence of a group of men of goodwill. Without that, they fail. And this is universally discussed by our founders. We need a religious people to uphold this republic, or we need a people who are jealous for their liberties and, and zealous in the defense of them. So those ideas are, are old. They're old. You need not only good words, but also good men who adhere to and then who, who propagate good words. The difference in law schools is vast, not so much between law schools. And you will notice that over American history, we have become extremely narrow in our selection of Supreme Court justices. You really have to have gone to Harvard, Yale, or Columbia Law School in order to be on the Supreme Court at this point. We used to pick all kinds of people <laughs> for better or for worse. And it's not that those, you know, Yale's conservative or something or Harvard is, is leftist. It's that within law, within the legal profession itself, you have a disagreement between, let's say very broadly, critical legal theory on the one hand, which would be the genesis of, for instance, insisting that the people of the United States is not a, is a fiction in the constitution because it's only men or it's only white men who meet voting qualifications that therefore it's a fiction that is going to hold the constitution at a very different distance from someone who is an originalist, which is the school from which Thomas and Scalia and Alito and so on come also ostensibly Roberts. Although Roberts is simply, I think more of a politician than many of the other judges. So most, most of the Supreme court justices behave somewhat like academics where they're really interested in the theory and they want to take the theory to its fullest extent. Roberts is like somebody who gets into academic administration where he was smart enough to do the theories, but what he's really interested in are the power dynamics of the group of academics. And so you will yeah, always, mean, yeah, go ahead. If you, if you look at his robe, as he walks in the room, you can see the lizard tail just kind of hanging out the back. <laughs> and that's another worried. way to put what I just said. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a simpler way. That's a funnier way. So it's those disagreements between critical legal theory, which is in many ways under a lady, I can't remember where she taught, but Kimberly Crenshaw, she is the mother of intersectionality. So a lot of things that have made this journey from, you know, a lot of listeners will be familiar with this idea of the Frankfurt School and critical theory. The way that it gets into practice in American political life is really through critical legal theory. And that will be in one variety or another at the heart of leftist jurisprudence at this point in American history. So that disagreement about whether these documents, I mean, it's almost like whenever they're talking about the constitution, they're arguing in bad faith because they don't really care what well-regulated militia means. 
they don't think people should have guns. And because that is a laudable political goal in their minds, finally, it won't matter what well-regulated militia means. Mm-hmm. And so you will find, especially in the court's most liberal eras, the Warren and the Burger courts, that the arguments are often horrendously put together, which is precisely the point that was made in Dobbs v. Jackson about Roe v. Wade. Like you just didn't do a good job. And it's not because these people are all utterly idiotic. I mean, maybe some of them are. It is because it doesn't really matter what the Constitution says or what the common law tradition represents. It, it doesn't, it just doesn't matter. The past doesn't matter to them because the past is tarnished by being too white or too male or too, you know what I mean? I mean, they'll, they'll go for that when they need to, in, and thereby will reveal that to them, American history is just a blank slate and, and they're doing the erasing and then they're going to write something new. Which brings us back to what, you know, what's coming and, and how could you even tell? So, can we see that Dobbs is an element of the fracturing of the Republic that we have kind of touched on throughout this show, uh, recognizing that as the globalist thing happens, uh, you're seeing the nations once built upon ethnicity and or language and or culture and or some semblance of those all being one thing um, now being uh, shrunk into regional uh, areas, uh, city states, if you were, but I mean, you really are seeing it in terms of what states now have laws on the books against abortion, just, just bam, just like that. Right. And, um, so that fracturing thing that we've been calling out for a while, can we see this as actually part of that as opposed to it? I mean, it's obviously not unifying, but when we were talking about fracturing before we were, we were talking, I think a little more ethereally about, you know, uh, a post power uh, experience where the, the corrupt and or incompetent superpower just can't enforce its laws. And so new laws are being done elsewhere. People are under self rule because they have to be to survive. This isn't quite that, or, or is it, or is it, I guess is the question. I, I, it, it is not yet clearly post something because the people who believe abortion is murder are still operating within the framework that the Republic has set up for them. And there is a great deal of attention to the religious affiliation of the various justices with the court being vastly more Catholic than it has ever been before. But with but with the justices not really being representative of their co-religionists, the only people in the United States who are reliably against abortion as demographic groups are white evangelical Protestants and Mormons. Everyone else is split. Hispanic Protestants are relatively anti-abortion, but maybe not even a majority are anti-abortion. Black Protestants are overwhelmingly in favor of abortion. Jews are the most favorable toward abortion. The religious composition of the court, therefore, does not even necessarily reveal what the fracturing of the country will be like. The fracturing of the country is occurring in this way already, and we'll ha- we can discuss it more next week, but it's occurring in the way that anywhere where the Republican Party is dominated by white evangelical Protestants, abortion is almost instantaneously illegal. Missouri, South Dakota, 
Mississippi, Alabama, and so on, with things like this about to occur, perhaps in places like Florida, where anyone has any kind of split or where Catholics are a significant part of the electorate, such as Pennsylvania or Michigan or or Ohio, there is more dissension and the possibility for almost anything to happen. So for example, if Doug Mastroianno becomes governor of Pennsylvania, then with the Republican legislature that always dominates Pennsylvania, because there the middle of the state gets more representation than in statewide elections, then all of a sudden Pennsylvania could be, you know, a, a cold version of Florida, politically speaking. If Josh Shapiro gets elected to succeed Tom Wolf as, as a Democrat, then Pennsylvania remains much more akin to California. So the, the problem here is that the fractures run, the fractures are fractal. They go all the way down, all the way down. And they are not perhaps identical to each other on every level, but they go all the way down and they go all the way down into families. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the massively significant things about this entire question is that it has been made a question that could divide husband from wife. Now, I don't, I don't know how often that happens. I would be willing to bet it happens a little less often in white evangelical Protestant families than in white Catholic families who probably have something like a similar income and probably live next door to each other. But it is a fact that when you begin to talk about this as a question of women, which is precisely where the dissenting opinion goes right away, women do not have liberty and equality in the United States of America, then you have made this a nuclear issue. A consummate politician like John Roberts, that's the very thing he was eager to avoid. He wanted the court simply to say that Mississippi's viability law prohibiting abortion after 15 weeks was constitutional. That's all. And part of the reason he doesn't want to do that is because how could a person like John Roberts survive when this is down to the level of, I'm going to, I mean, we kind of had this maybe as memes, who knows if it was even true. I'm going to divorce you because you voted for Trump. Well, now I'm going to divorce you because you don't recognize that I'm a human or something, right? Because the discussion of what abortion is, quote, doing, or the, the illegality of abortion, quote, does to women is always centered on their maintenance and extension of ultimate liberty, a liberty that, that men, in fact, do not have. I mean, no, no one is saying that the father of the child in, say, Maryland or California should come up to the two-year-old child when he, when he, has the, when he takes a paternity test and he realizes as some horrible percentage of men in any study I've ever heard about involving paternity, they find out this isn't actually my kid. (laughs) No one is saying men should be able to kill children whom they learn are not their own, but whom they are being forced to support. That would be in terms of uh, Roe v. Wade's references in line with Roman tradition. No one's saying that. This is about the maintenance and extension of the ultimate liberties of what is supposed to be a protected class, among others, but a sexually protected class of women. Here's the big problem that I see coming 
on the left, we have not running actually at the same speed as the discussion of abortion. And the outrage over this, I mean, it is, it is less than the George Floyd riots in 2020. So the outrage over this, I do not think will endure in quite the same way as, as BLM has. And it will be put to some of the same political uses for, for operatives purposes. But the problem here is that running a, behind the debate about abortion is the discussion of what a woman is. Mm -hmm. yeah. If we cannot actually resolve that, then we don't know what it is that we are protecting. And this is somewhat like the slippage that you get in people saying child when they want it and fetus when they don't. And sometimes they will inadvertently slip in the same mm -hmm. sentence between child and like they'll catch themselves and they'll correct with fetus. And I am beginning to hear this in a discussion of women and then they'll slip and then they'll say pregnant persons. So the difficulty here is that the left does not operate on any kind of even vaguely historically apposite Anglo-American idea of individual liberties or rights. That's not what this is ever actually about. It's always about protected classes, which are usually designated in journalistic and academic parlance as communities. It's all about communities. And the problem here is that they are beginning to dissolve their own, quote unquote, communities. And when that happens, they throw open the door to challenges of what is self-evident, that's a baby inside of you, or challenges of what appears obvious, you will never be a woman, <laughs> you just can't achieve it. And so that's why I think that the future, and I don't only say this because of the Dobbs decision, but that's why I think the future is wide open because I think we have been thinking, and this is why I myself was extremely surprised by Dobbs. We have been thinking that it was all trending in one direction and guess what? It wasn't. Yeah. It, it makes me think of my complaint about Lutheran jargon and how at a certain point our attempts to tell the truth uh, become so precise that nobody can understand what we're talking about. And it's kind of running in the opposite direction uh, that they are increasingly making it more difficult for themselves to speak. Uh, and as they do that, their distance from the uh, the classes they claim to represent, uh, not only in terms of ability to speak about them, but then ability to be heard, especially yeah, right. by them, uh, is is just increasing. And this isn't just, you know, let them eat cake, you're out of touch with your people, but it also, it, it is that in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, the the idea of the the free woman versus the free man and this notion that you can't be free um, if you can't kill your child. Correct. Yep. It's, just so, it's just so strange because and you kind of touched on it and then you went a different direction. Like who's got that kind of freedom, not not to kill the child, but this, this kind of absolute, I have no bounds, I have no holds thing is, is mind boggling. Um, and yet that, that is what's been sold Right. As the political formula right. to people who are sitting in cubicles, you know, filling out human resources forms, uh, you know, going home to their cats. And it, it's just, I don't know. At what point does the person realize my religion isn't working for me anymore? And I guess, yeah, 
what what seems to be there, and I would agree with you that like, okay, so I've seen the rage machine, I've seen the shouting of people. Oh, look, here's the three thousand people in L.A. protesting. Three thousand, really? Right. That's it. Yeah. You can't wow. even you can't even get a good riot going. You know, no, you're right. I mean, LA, right. LAPD handled them in a way that they did not handle the city after George Floyd. And, and not just, I think it was a, a lot of cities looking at it that yep. way. Yep. Uh, yeah. That, that absolute freedom, which is in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that I have only ever seen recognized in literature, that, that absolute freedom that is satanic because mm-hmm. it, is a, it is a freedom from any order. It is a freedom to do whatsoever you will, right? Do what thou wilt is what is how Aleister Crowley phrased it. That satanic freedom is, I think, why you see the manifestations of pride, especially, but of freedom generally that you do see, that they are actually visually repulsive, that somehow your soul curls up or shrinks back from having to look at it because you recognize that something is just off and not just off, but maybe even horrifying about what you're looking at. That's something that you can only see when you realize that this person is trying to go through with something that is in its nature, impossible and unnatural in a way that is destructive. I think that is the very thing that is being revealed in in all of this is the revelation of satanic things present in our lives. I mean, present in all our cities by people who want to do whatsoever they will. Yeah, that the ugliness is, I don't want to call it a truth. Truth is beauty, and, and, but ugly is real. And when you see it, it it's, not a, it's not in the eye of the beholder. Right. Not at all. Um, there is an image that I saw... Uh, floating through Twitter, uh, and it's this—it's not really ugly until you look at what it says. It's this kind of amazingly adorned knight. Uh, it's drawn, um, comic book-ish, but a little higher quality than a comic book generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, this knight, is <laughs> kneeling, and she has a dagger uh, kind of pointed at her own chest. And it says, there's a voice that says, you know, this child within you is destined for greatness. And then she says, what of my greatness? And she's going to kill herself, you know, because she doesn't get the chance to be great because this child is going to take it away from her, right? Right. She'll she'll have to spend some of her life making sure the child doesn't die. And, you know, nine months at least. And so this, this, it floated around. It's got a bunch of different comments from different people on it. But to me... Uh, it it does show what you just talked about that the real ugly, the real pride is the belief that greatness is is selfish. That the greatness is if I'm going to be great, it's going to be right. about me and what I do, as opposed to the the absolute beauty of greatness always being in service to the other. That is what truly great is, and um, the the satanic pride which turns all things inward. Uh, is is very much at that image, and then I mean, as you mentioned, ugly. I, uh, these pride parade images, you know, it's like uh, I have to scroll past Twitter fast now because I don't want to see the porn. I I really don't, and uh, it's not 
it's not porn. It's just live feeds with children watching, right. and it's it's absolutely disgusting. Uh, and and that should be evident, but then it's not again. So that brings me back to okay. So we have, um, and we're getting close to the end of this hour. Um, we have a small riot, a wannabe riot, a baby riot in L.A. and other places, but you nonetheless have these massive amounts of children being groomed. Can I say it that way? Uh, I guess I kind of hope that could backfire too, <laughs> uh, that that it isn't such a win as they think it is to, to do these lewd and licentious things in front of the children, uh, that there will perhaps be a righteous rage that uh, cannot endure what they've been subjected to and fights back. But, but then again, you know, Sodom, Sodom was Sodom. So what do you think? I, I don't think of it as a backlash so much as certainly in my own experience, you, you can only, when you are cornered in this way, and we had something like this at the college I attended where the men had to cross dress and the women had to go naked. That, that was, those were the rules. So we still had only men and women, <laughs> but we had rules that were about, you know, whatever destroying boundaries. And this was, this party is permanently funded by some kind of millionaire named Sager. So people can look that up on the internet if they want to. And I did not go to this, obviously, but when you are cornered in that way, like, will you do this or not? It's you, you either do it and you are compromised in a way that you, you never were before that. And maybe you were undecided or you didn't even care that people did this, but then you're cornered. And if you do it, then you're, you're with them and you are open to their ways in a way that you were not before, or you refuse and you are hardened against them as you never were before. And I already see many similar things with people younger than myself. I expect it only to intensify that when confronted with radicality, absolutely radical choices that are non-intuitive for a child that don't make much sense that they've never heard of, you make some choice and then you are changed by it in a very deep way, in a way that you weren't changed by the choice between, you know, you got to high school and you had to pick a sport to play or something. So those kinds of choices, yes, it's horrible that those are being foisted on children, but I would not underestimate what God can do through those choices being foisted on people because they will create spirits full of fire that previous generations did not have to have. By fire, you mean a zeal for the decision that has been made, whether good or evil. That is true even for evil, it will create a certain fire because once you have taken a, once you have taken that step, then every step backward in repentance gets that much harder. Also, once you have taken a step against darkness, every step toward light gets easier and simpler and more obvious. There's a time of enormous confusion. And it used to be that we would want to fund college ministries because we, we knew that that was a time of decision for people's lives, massive conflict going on, also spiritually in most of them, intellectual questioning. That age of decision is unfortunately being pushed lower and lower and lower to places where you can't even really make coherent decisions. But it is, I think, all the more reason to, to focus extensively on 
teaching children and and reaching children with the light of Christ because they face so much more darkness than they did before. More on this next week. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here.